Hi, I'm Dahlia Lithwick, legal correspondent, author, and host of Slate's Amicus Podcast, a show about the rule of law, the law, and the Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of us. I've been watching the high court for over two decades, and I bring all that experience and knowledge to examining the U.S. justice system and democracy. Each episode, I am joined by guests with deep knowledge of the law and policy who help me and you navigate our constitutional landscape. Slate's Amicus Podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Welcome to Jen Rubin's Green Room. This is Jen Rubin. It's not very often that historians become popular media figures, but in the age in which we live, historians have become vital to understanding what we're going through, why we're going through it, where these forces of intolerance, nationalism, xenophobia, fascism came from. And when you look at the array of people who have uh, really studied the issue of fascism, there's no one better than my guest today, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She has specialized in Italian fascism. And if you will, her ship has come in because we are now experiencing a authoritarian movement that bears an uncanny resemblance to many of the qualities in the sort of regime that she has studied. And I think it's important to both understand how uniquely American our situation is, insofar as we have never come to terms with race, but also how consistent it is with the way right-wing movements have operated historically and around the world. So without further ado, I welcome Ruth to the show. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. As I said in my introduction, it seems like historians' ship has come in these days because everyone is striving to figure out the moment we're in, the forces that we see. And no one is better at studying fascism than someone who made her entire career, frankly, up until now, I think, um, studying um, fascism, studying a special variety, which is Italian fascism. Um, And by the way, um, please go ahead and plug your book at every opportunity. Um, And I think we should start with a basic question. What is fascism? (laughs) A basic and very um, weighty and large question. Um, Fascism is famously difficult to define in part because Mussolini, the creator of fascism, didn't want to have, uh, a, he didn't want to limit himself to one definition. Um, and however, uh, at the very beginning in 1921, he defined fascism as a revolution of reaction. And I find that this is, uh, this is very um, useful uh, way of thinking about fascism because fascism came out of World War One. It is about upheaval and violence, a violent remaking of uh, the, the social order, the political order. Um, and yet, um, from then until now, uh, right-wing um, authoritarians have 
kind of uh, targeted any kind of social progress. It could be workers' rights, uh, gender emancipation, racial emancipation, and tried to turn back the clock. That's the reaction. So you have the combination of upheaval, terrible destruction to society that goes on today, look at Putin, uh, and this kind of trying to um, just block and reverse uh, social and other kinds of justice and progress. And so when you hear a phrase like make America great again, it's the again that I suspect makes you somewhat uncomfortable. Yes. In, in fact, in uh, my book, Strong Men, which is the first book to uh, put uh, Trump and the GOP in the perspective of 100 years of authoritarianism, I have a chapter on the kind of myth of national greatness. And all authoritarians uh, play on utopia. And this goes back to the origins of fascism, also communism, of course, that they are going to re-engineer the social order and make things better. But it's very important that they, especially fascism and right-wing authoritarians, they play on nostalgia. That has to be there too. So it's never just making the nation great, which is forward-looking. It's also making it great again. And that nostalgia could be um, in the case of uh, Turkish despot Erdogan. He's got a whole ideology of reviving the Ottoman Empire. Of course, Vladimir Putin has these imperial, you know, Russian imperial dreams. Everyone has their own version. In Trump's case, it was a kind of um, big tent for all these kind of malcontents and people who didn't like uh you know, they wanted to go back to the time of controls on black people and uh, when gay marriage wasn't legalized. And so it's a multi-form thing, but it's very, very compelling to people, this combination of utopia and nostalgia. So Make America Great Again was a perfect uh, example of this. When you use the word fascism, and now I do, um, people say, oh, no, 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 that's not fascism. And I get the feeling that they've set the bar too high, if you will, that to be a fascist, they think you have to be in a black uniform with a swastika or you have to be in, Malun- in uh, Mussolini's you know, black shirts. What is the um, factor? What is the thing that you look to to say this is fascism as opposed to just authoritarianism or simply, um, you know, a a lack of democratic uh, values? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually didn't, I didn't use the word fascism at first. And I was one of the very first people I started, uh, you know, talking about Trump uh, in 2015, the, the minute I saw him in his rallies, I thought this is a demagogue, and it seemed very familiar to me as a historian of fascism. But I didn't want to use the term at first because I felt that, um, especially the American public, was not um, uh, was not prepared to see it, their own country as a place authoritarianism or fascism could happen. This is very this is early on, 2016, 17 when I predicted he would, you know, rule as an authoritarian. And so I thought that just as you said, it was, it would be counterproductive because people would say, well, I don't see tanks in the streets. I don't see swastikas. Um, I don't see a one party state. So the reason I wrote strongmen 
uh, which is a history of authoritarianism, 100 years, is to let educate people into how it's changed. So today, fascism isn't necessarily going to be a one-party state. Today, you don't have to ban elections. You have something called electoral autocracy, like Orban does or Erdogan. And so fascism is going to look different. And yet it has many continuities, personality cults, demagogues, militias. Fascism actually started as a decentralized militia movement in Italy. So I'm very worried about all of the extremists and militias and you know, anti-government activists that have been legitimized in our country. So what there is no one tipping point, but when, so what I try and do is look at the logic, what ties together these different things that are happening. And so I do call uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, the Florida fascist sometime, because I think that the way he's linking repression of education, uh, persecution of LGBTQ people, hypernationalism, anti-communism, is very familiar uh, set of things that goes back to fascism. Talk to us a little bit about how fascism interacts with religion. On one hand, people get the impression that fascists um, are atheists, that they want you to be loyal to and have um, the leader as the deity, as the Messiah. On the other hand, it seems that instrumentally, they always wind up using the church or manipulating the church in ways that serve their purpose. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, So I work in my book and elsewhere. I have a Substack newsletter, Lucid, and I I frequently talk about the concept of authoritarian bargains. This is when a wannabe authoritarian demagogue uh, comes in and makes a deal with religious elites, also financial political elites, and says, if you will be loyal to me, I will deliver for you. Um, And once these bargains uh, are set, and Putin has one with the Orthodox Church, very effective, They give this violent demagogue moral legitimacy in return for having uh, their own own needs met. So Putin has financed the, um, you know, restoration of lots of Orthodox churches. And often, indeed, it is the people who are the most amoral, the most atheist or just impious, uh, starting with Mussolini, who was, had been a socialist and hated the church. Um, He was an atheist, and yet he was the person to make peace with the Vatican. And the Vatican, the Lateran Accords, gave him enormous legitimacy because he was the first person to have a right-wing dictatorship. And moving forward in our times, so I was, um, you know, chuckling and also quite distressed that here comes Trump, one of the more amoral, uniquely amoral figures in our history, who was the same person who managed to get evangelical Christians and Orthodox Jews to say that he was put in office by the will of God. And this is a theme in my book, Strongmen, of the um, anointment of the strongmen as someone who's there by the will of God. And this, that particular discourse can't work on the public unless they have these bargains with li- religious elites. And it's interesting when you say that they 
tend not to be religious themselves. We all remember Trump in Corinthians 2. Um, in other words, he doesn't even, he can't name a Bible verse that he is familiar with. He has no experience in religion. Um, his religion is himself because he's a toxic narcissist. And yet that doesn't, he's divorced three times. He now is an adjudicated assaulter, molester of women. Um that doesn't seem to dissuade the group that he has bargained with, as it were, because he's delivering. He delivered the Supreme Court to them. That sounds an awful lot like these bargains that you have talked about. Um, talk a little bit about, as well, the business community. Um, you know, Hitler was going to make, uh, was going to revive German economy again. Um, and Trump has um, gone out of his way to um, feather the nest of very rich donors, large corporations. Explain that kind of coordination to us. Yeah, this is an extremely important subject where, because uh, for many reasons. One is that, um, speaking now again of right-wing authoritarians, they always um, are brought into power because they have a pact with conservative elites, including financial business elites. And uh, again, these are people who will be anything to, there will be whatever is needed at that time to get to power. And so uh, Mussolini may have been a socialist in the past, but it's very interesting that the first thing he did when he got into power uh, was major privatizations of the insurance sector, the telecommunications as it, as it existed in 1923. So he sent a signal to the people who mattered in the financial community that he was, oh, he was not a socialist at all anymore. And so it has been. Um, and uh, two points I want to make. One is um, we think about authoritarianism and fascism as imposing controls on people. And that is certainly part of it. But a very important piece, which is uh, shown in the history of authoritarians and privatization, is rolling back regulations so that your allies, those you have the bargain with, can do whatever they want and get away with plundering, plundering the environment, plundering business, whatever it, it is in that context. And so the fact that Trump rolled back 100 environmental regulations, even food safety. This was his deals with big pharma, with mining companies. So that plunder uh, is an inter allowing plunder and making plunder more important uh, and making illicit activities, offshore finance, whatever it is, is, is really important part of the, the arrangement with financial elites. Um, the other, the other point is, uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to debunk the myths about these men. And one is that they are, quote, good for the economy, that they bring stability. These are among the most destructive individuals who have ever lived. And I wanted to publicize the fact that most of them go after the economy. They go after business. Erdogan has plundered since the coup in 2016 against him. He has plundered and seized over $35 billion of assets from ordinary Turkish people. And then, of course, Putin has a fully formed kleptocracy. The only leaders had a 
had a more um, complete kleptocracy were Mobutu and Gaddafi. And so uh, one out of six Russian business owners had had their assets uh, targeted for plunder or had been jailed by 2018. So these are not sustainable systems. They are destructive systems. And, and yet they use propaganda, they use the personality cults to seem like they are uh, a force for uh, economic prosperity. This is one of the biggest scams of authoritarianism. One other group that authoritarians and fascists tend to cultivate, which um, hasn't really worked out as he would have liked in the United States, is the military. Now, he has tried. He talks about his generals um, as if they were reporting directly to him that he gets to move around um, the little tin men on a board. Um, But, of course, in other instances, we've seen how the military has either welcomed them or at least facilitated um, their rise because they're seen as favoring military values in some sense. Um, Why does that happen? And what do you think is perhaps, um, thank goodness, unique about the American military that thwarted Trump in his ability to do that here? Yeah, as you can imagine, um, because uh, I watched uh, all of the machinations uh, after, you know, 2020 leading up to January 6th with great interest and um, alarm. Uh, A third of my book is uh, about coups. And that was one of the I hadn't written that much about coups before I did the research for this book. It was extremely interesting. I never thought that it would be so relevant to the U.S., the whole knowledge about coups. And not all are military, but many are. Um, and so, uh, you you know, I was watching to see what happened to the U.S. military, watching with alarm that, you know, there was a declaration uh, among uh, hundreds of retired uh, mili- right-wing military saying, uh, backing up Michael Flynn's idea that there should be a martial law declared and a rerun of the election. This is all very dangerous. And it's very interesting because just a few individuals can make a big difference at crisis moments. And one of these, of course, was General Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was absolutely unwavering in his commitment to respect the Constitution and all the things he did. There were other individuals, including uh, one, uh, De Silva, I believe his name is, who who actually grew up in uh, a Portuguese dictatorship and now is among our commanding uh, commanders of our military. These are people who know very well what Trump is about, um, praising dictators, uh, you know, wanting that kind of power. Um, and so this was very heartening to me. However, I, I would like to see more vetting in the military of extremists go on because uh, there are many cases in history um, where, like in Chile, they, the military 
looked around at all the coups happening and said, we're not going to be like uh, Bolivia or, or all these other places. We respect the Constitution. We are democratic. And then they too fell. So you have to be very vigilant. And I don't think that enough has been done um, uh, to uh, given the volume of extremism now and the uh, efforts, uh, ceaseless efforts of people like Michael Flynn to radicalize uh, current and former military. So we have to really watch that very carefully. I did watch Millie, and there was also, I remember a letter by, I believe it was eight former secretaries of defense yes. um, warning about the potential for a coup. And it did make me appreciate this strong tradition we have of civilian leadership and of um, the constitutionalism that is uh, enforced as part of the military ethic, um, that they have an obligation to follow legal orders, that they understand that they report to the commander-in-chief, that they take an oath to the Constitution. So all of that, I think, was um, very encouraging. The next sort of group I want to talk about um, is women. And I think people now don't understand that the assault on abortion and Trump's physical assault on women is also very much a feature of fascism, that these movements tend to want to return women to a domestic role. They're encouraged to have children. They are um, thrown out of professions. Um, They are domesticized and turned into baby producers for the state. How does that come about? Um, And how does that then translate in the modern world where you have millions of women who don't want to go back to that sort of existence. Yeah, this this is uh, an integral part of, of, of authoritarianism from fascism onward. And so I see fascism as the first stage of a history of authoritarianism in this regard. And um, there's a kind of triumvirate or triad of um, gender policies. One, and they all work together. One is misogyny that gets institutionalized by taking women's rights away, uh, you know, turning them into baby machines, as you said. So misogyny also uh, at at the workplace, you know, Trump partly uh, decriminalized domestic violence that kind of flew under the radar, but he did it. Um, And that goes back, you know, how I made the point before about plunder and we were talking about business, but the ability to plunder bodies Um, that men are able to do what they want with women. What did Trump say years before he became president? When you're a star, they let you do it. You don't even have to ask. So getting away with what you want and having what you want when you want it is part of being a man. And so that's the second leg of this triad. So the first being misogyny. The second is hypermasculinity and actually the cult of brute male force. And we're seeing a lot of that right now uh, with that totally bizarre uh, video now deleted that DeSantis put out where he's comparing himself to predator animals like alligators and all kinds of uh, toxic, you know, detritus going about now uh, to do with masculinity, hyper-masculinity. The third is suppression and persecution of other forms of masculinity and sexuality. And that's where the anti-LGBTQ uh, legislation and hatred comes in. And 
these this triad has existed uh, throughout the history of authoritarianism, and we're seeing it now, uh, you know, come in our country, uh, very, very developed. Um, and I, I'm obviously very concerned about this because the more that you have a conception of leadership, which is held up, and look at look at Elon Musk now saying, oh, I'm going to have a dick measuring contest. The more these kinds of crude, um, lawless masculinity and hyper-masculinity pervade the atmosphere, the more people feel legitimized and this becomes the culture. And we've gone a very long way toward that. Um, and it's, it's really very distressing. One fascinating data point that absolutely supports your position um, was told to me by Robert P. Jones, who's head of PRRI. He's a researcher um, that looks at Christian nationalism and white nationalism. And one of the defining factors, the highest correlation when you look at uh, thoughts, other than being a Fox News watcher, is that you believe that gender roles have been messed with, that you want to return to more traditional gender roles. And that seems to be precisely what you're talking about. So you have um, male senators like Josh Hawley complaining that we are stealing masculinity. Um, he's written a whole book about it, uh, I am told. I'm <laughs> going to read it. Um, and so on one hand, they claim victimhood that the elites are demasculinizing them. On the other hand, they have this toxic masculinity. It's a very strange phenomenon. It, it, it's strange, but it goes back to fascism. The, the man as the victim uh, and then the man as the brute. They exist in a kind of dialogue. And I do want to say um, I'm, I'm glad when these topics come up because uh, Strongman is the first book to elevate machismo to what I call a tool of authoritarian rule. So I have a chapter on it alongside corruption, violence, propaganda, and the myth of national greatness. And it was really important for me to do that as a scholar because I saw that, although there's huge you know, amounts of scholarship on gender, those who write on authoritarianism didn't really take masculinity seriously. And, and yeah, it's the center of everything. Also because, uh, and this was hard as a female scholar to write this part of the book, these, these, uh, these leaders were often serial rapists. And they actually, in the case of Mussolini and, and Gaddafi, and, and to some extent Berlusconi, they had these kind of, um, it was as though Jeffrey Epstein was the head of the government um, and used mm. government apparatus or uh, the, his own fixers and kind of secret police or uh, private security to procure, to scout women, to, to then fix, you know, pay for their abortions or uh, beat up their husbands or them. And so they, they, it gets kind of institutionalized into these, um, these kind of systems of abuse that put what we've been talking about into practice. And it, it's a feature of these, quote, strong men. And Trump had a, a similar thing with his uh, models and Miss Universe pageants. It's just that most of it uh, stopped before he became president, but he had the same history. Um, 
And, and so I, and this was not um, featured very much in reviews of the book. People didn't quite know what to do with this part of the book. And yet look what we're, look what's happened now, two years later. Yes. Yes. One of the other phenomena that I've noticed with Trump, and I wonder if it's indicative of fascism in general, is the attack on professional codes of conduct so that he expects lawyers not to uphold the law, but to serve him, that the fascist state wants doctors to disregard their medical obligations to treat patients and instead enact forced birth laws, that there's an assault on these outside demands um, for moral behavior or professionally um, sanctioned behavior. Is that part of this too, that they want to you know, academic freedom, for example, that they're trying to disassociate people from all of these other structures that may have other demands on them. Absolutely. It's so important that you brought this up. And um, this is corruption. This can be understood under many uh, authoritarian tools. I talk about it in my corruption chapter, where the goal of the authoritarian is to debase you and to bring you down to his level so that you will be okay. You will become complicit in his crimes. You will approve of his methods. And it's like watching this come to life uh, with what's happened to the GOP, where he made them complicit in his uh, attempts to overturn the 2020 election and then a violent coup attempt. (laughs) And so now you have these creatures like, you know, Jim Jordan, who are, you know, they think that in saving Trump, they're going to save themselves. But they're, they're all so compromised that the bar is lowered. And so what can they do? They have to destroy any notion of professional ethics. Um, and it's a very sad uh, syndrome that happens. And it happens across the board um, that uh, all notions of um, professionalism and expertise get replaced by loyalty. All that matters to whether it's Putin or Erdogan or Orban or Trump, loyalty is what matters. And that is your professional qualification. And when that takes over, you have a syndrome, uh, Putin's in it now, where you start believe, you surround yourself with sycophants, you stop getting good intake. Everybody knows that leaders in whatever sector, they need good objective feedback. Authoritarians don't want that. <laughs> they, they set up these dysfunctional governance structures. And so after a while, they start to make mistakes. Um, Putin and, you know, Ukraine, there's a whole... And, and I predicted three days after the war started, uh, February 2022, I published a piece in MSNBC saying this wasn't going to go well. It was going to reveal the corruption of the army, the ravages of kleptocracy, and Putin's kind of living in a bubble. So they all end up in these bunkers, uh, in these bubbles, and it doesn't serve them well. And this is the end, the end state, the end arrival point of debasing professional ethics that you bring up. And it's funny, you talk about DeSantis, um, his attack on teachers, that they're not supposed to teach what is professionally um, required, what they think is good education, but parrot a certain line of thinking. Uh, likewise, he fires a prosecutor who um, has an independent source of um, 
judicial responsibility. Um, so these same factors where they really um, mm-hmm. try to impede people's professional identity and professional loyalties is really, you know, profound. There are some people who say that there is a certain personality that is amenable to fascism. Is that true or is that simply a matter that these people are very good at manipulating certain qualities that everyone has? Or is there an authoritarian personality, for lack of a better term? It's a little of both. Um, I mean, the psychologist Theodore Adorno published in a lot of German exiles were very obviously interested uh, uh, trying to figure out what had happened to their own country under Hitler. I don't use Adorno's authoritarian personality because it's also very homophobic, uh, saying that, you know, the line that Nazis were deviants, they were gay. And so I don't really find that very useful today. But um, Karen Stenner, uh, uh, a scholar, published a book called um, The Authoritarian Something, I'm forgetting the title, um, where her research showed that up to 30% of any population has authoritarian tendencies. And the way you measure these is their attitudes about parenting, about institutions, about religion, uh, how they are as fathers or mothers. And when people like Trump come in, and this is where my research takes this further, when, when they come on the scene and they will be anything they need to be uh, to get power. So there's, they're multiform, right? They're, they're pious for the, the fundamentalists of religion. They're, you know, they're headbusters for all the extremists. They, they say, they tell each person what they want to hear. But what's in common is that they are cult leaders and they play on this desire of a certain kind of person to look to a figure who's going to solve all their problems, um, who tells them they've been forgotten, that he will save them, he will save America, and who creates a sense of uh, crisis, uh, permanent crisis and instability so that these people will be living in fear and more dependent on him. So these are these very profound psychological dynamics that span uh, space and time, right? They, they, that was one fascinating thing about doing the research over 100 years. These cult dynamics are the same uh, they, they, because they are rooted in human psychology. Fascinating. There is a very good record, unfortunately, that once these figures get into power, even if they leave the trappings of democracy, they tend to stay in power. Um, you just saw Erdogan get reelected. You've, we've yeah. seen Orban, I'll hold, that there's a stickiness to them that they um, are able to stay in power. How do you counteract that? And in a broader sense, what do Americans do? Not just about Trump, because I think that underestimates the problem, but about a movement that has taken hold that potentially has affected tens of millions of Americans. Yeah, they, they do over the longer that authoritarians stay in power, especially today with this kind of electoral autocracy, um, it becomes harder to get them out. Um, 
And, and yet, I do want to say that we are living through, um, it's not covered enough by the press, a global renaissance of nonviolent protest. Everywhere in the world, um, not, not everywhere, but many places, countries are having either the largest demonstrations they've ever had, like in Israel, or the largest they've had in many decades, like in Iran, even in China, you had, you know, 79 universities had protests uh, in late 2022 in China. They were a big deal. The Chinese have managed to uh, make them kind of disappear from memory. But it, it's there's something going on. And in our country, the Women's March, no one talks about anymore, was the largest in American history, surpassed only by Black Lives Matter. Up to 20 million people participated in a Black Lives Matter event, multi-generational, multiracial. So this is not something that's going to be stopped. And I'm mentioning it because one of the perennial tools, I have a resistance chapter in Strongman, is nonviolent mass protest. And it's most effective when you can connect it uh, with what's called the pillars of society, the elites. And so I, I am frustrated that, um, for example, on the on the theme of uh, political violence and gun violence, business elites are not are, are have de- have somehow decided that two hundred and eighty billion dollars a year is an okay price to pay, and won't go against the Republicans. That's part of the mix. Um, gun violence. So um, it's very difficult sometimes to get um, the influential people to ally with the protesters. But when that happens, you have a synergy that can actually make a difference. And it is fascinating in Israel. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking to politicians there and reading the uh, English speaking, at least uh, Israeli press. And what's so extraordinary there is you have high tech people, you have military people, you have religious people, you have secular people. Um, The age Variety is great. And this has happened in a country that really never had a tradition of um, civic protest on this level, on this size. What are the things that Americans should be doing to cultivate resistance, to cultivate a spirit of democracy that's sufficient enough to hold the line against people like Trump and the ideas that he is now sort of injected into the body politic? I think um, there are people who say that you can't outvote voter suppression, but I I think um, keeping hope up and not being defeatist is extremely important. And and dissidents who like have survived, you know, twenty years of Putin's Russia will tell you the same thing. You must have hope. You must keep um, organizing. Keep reaching out. Keep being an activist, whatever that means in your country. So I keep, I'm very haunted by the fact that, you know, 70, 80 million people didn't vote in the last elections. This is the time to reach out to, to those people and also to try and reach out to people who are still in what I call the disinformation tunnel. My, my own, my mother was radicalized during the pandemic in, in England by watching RT, Russia Today. And I know how difficult it is um, to, to get through to people. But that's something, and experts would call this depolarization or a bridge building. These are things that are very important because what, what people like DeSantis and the Trumps and 
uh, all the McCarthy's want to do is destroy our communities and set us against each other in ways that are irreparable. And so um, each of us can, you know, help get out the vote. Each of us can uh, try and repair our communities, our families. Um, these are things that, that we can do at an individual level. And I would add to that, um, since I wrote a book on women's uh, resistance to Donald Trump, that there's a powerful connectivity that people who are not previously engaged in politics, who suddenly get fear um, that this is happening, find receptive audience that they never imagined was there. I remember interviewing a woman from Midland, um, Michigan, which she thought there were no Democrats there. Well, she started having meetings in her church and pretty soon there were two, 3,000 women um, that were connecting with her. So there is, I think, a hunger for this kind of connection out there. I want to end with one more question, which um, I think is very easy to forget. The authoritarians are so good at picking out vulnerable people that it's sometimes hard for someone who doesn't fall within one of those vulnerable populations to understand that that's a threat to them. But empathy for individuals, even if you're not LGBTQ, even if you're not a teacher who believes that race should be taught in the schools, even if you're not a woman who may someday need abortion, that you have to, that has to be you too. That has to be um, of concern to you. How do you reinforce that sense that we really are all in this together and that there's no one who is safe if some of us are not safe? I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Two reasons. One is that it's kind of um, flown under the radar in a funny way, but we have been assaulted since 2015, so we're in the eighth year here. Uh, A psychological warfare operation, uh, this might sound overblown, but to uh, emotionally retrain us. Uh, Donald Trump himself, since 2015, has used his rallies. He's, he's a superb propagandist in, in the manner of the demagogues, the fascists. To, he's used his rallies to preach over and over again the virtues of violence. In the old days, you used to be able to punch someone, you got away with it. And I, part of uh, my report for the January 6th committee, I was interviewed twice and I, I did a report, was I had an appendix, which was very long, that listed all the times that he was doing this. And it adds up to a kind of emotional retraining. Um, and that's what these Republican legislations are, legislation is about uh, to ban the uh, teaching of anti-racism or slavery. The wording is very um, telling. It says, we don't want students to have any emotional distress or psychological problem. That's their conscience. What the Republicans are doing is engineering a population that has no conscience, that doesn't have to hear about injustice, and thus will be more amenable to uh, brutalism, to go back to our you know, male brutalism. So what we can do, um, and this is the subject of my next book, is uh, an, an anti-authoritarianism is counter that, well, expose it. That's number one. I try and do this whenever I'm on TV, uh, sometimes with you, 
uh, and elsewhere, expose that we have been subject to this emotional retraining that every dictator does, everyone. That's what made fascism work. Um, and counter it. And this is, goes back to the bridge building, to the expression of love. There's a very powerful uh, tradition of doctrines of love, and, and Martin you know, Luther King Jr. was one of the most famous exponents, but there are many more. Um, that love is a very powerful anti-authoritarian strategy, as is empathy, which is, can be part of that. So uh, having a sense that we are all in this together, um, and it's not just, as you said, that you know, if you're not X category, you don't have to worry about it. And that finally is why I wrote the book, because the history of authoritarianism is very clear. Eventually, they come for almost everyone. Um, many more people than ever thought, uh, many more people are targeted than ever was thought. Oh, it's just the Jews. Well, then in the end, it wasn't just the Jews. Um, It's always more people until you have the destruction of the country. Wow. This has been uh, enlightening, sobering, um, but also I think kind of hopeful. Martin Luther King, right, did talk about the beloved community um, of love, of um, reaching out to people and finding uh, a place where people could um, relate to one another as uh, fellow human beings. So perhaps uh, we're not so far gone. And after all, we have pulled back from the ledge, uh, at least in uh, three elections now. So we'll see if this uh, holds up. I can't wait to read your next book. And uh, everyone who's listening to this should go get a copy of Strongman. Um, it's a fabulous read. It is scarily, um, absolutely on the nose, um, considering the history of fascism and where we are now. So thank you for coming, Ruth. We hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Enjoyed it. And that was Ruth ben Jiat. It is a fascinating um, and not really all that comforting thought to comprehend that we are not so unique. Um, We are a special country, but we're not unique in our experience. And we are subject to the machinations and the manipulations of strongmen. And sadly, tens of millions of our fellow Americans are too. And I go back and forth uh, wanting to reach out to people, but fearing that a certain number of them have frankly been lost, that there's no reason, there's no amount of evidence that is going to debunk the latest conspiracy theory. But I think I would leave you with this. Really, despair is the greatest asset that fascists have. They want you to be exhausted. They want you to be compliant. And it is easy to get exhausted. After eight years of this, all of us do want to tune out and go lie on a beach someplace or watch uh, dumb TV. But you really can't because as soon as you do that, you have ceded the field of battle. And the battle is about not only democracy, but the human condition the desire for freedom, for decency, for love. And so the stakes could not be higher. And if you thought you'd done all the work you needed to do in 2018 or 2020 or 2022, I have bad news. You got to keep doing it. So keep hanging in there, keep fighting, keep reading, keep talking to people. And we will be back next time. If you liked this program, 
Please tell your friends. Please have them follow Jen Rubin's Green Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye. <laughs>